0: If you will join me in our scripture reading for this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then do you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. In your name we pray. Amen so this week i turned 30 and i got glasses so so that that's a thing that happened yep and i know that probably those of you over 30 are like mid-eye roll at this moment right because you're not particularly interested in hearing a millennial lament about entering the third decade of life and i get that right i'm with you i understand But if there's something I've noticed on this particular birthday, it's that people tend to make two different kinds of comments when you reach a seminal age of life. Whether it's 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, if you just go to the birthday card aisle at the grocery store, you will either see one version of, holy cow, you're old, get ready, it's all downhill from here. (laughs) Or you'll see a version of kind of a heartwarming, winky-faced, Attempt at the best things get better with age, right? No. (laughs) Come on. Cheese. Cheese. I feel like some cheese gets better with age. Well, so now I'm a little pessimistic about being 30. (laughs) But whether it's birthdays or food or other kinds of things, time is normally seen to have one of two effects. It makes things better or it makes things worse. It's helpful, or it's hurtful, it adds to the quality, or it takes away. And during Advent, both interpretations exist here too. On the one hand, Advent is a season where we're encouraged to wait and to prepare for the coming of Christ. Patience is a virtue in this season. Spiritual practices are our friend as we consider what it means for God to be revealed in our world. But on the other hand, Advent shouldn't generate stagnancy. It shouldn't be an excuse for inactivity or for putting the work of God off when there's no reason for a delay. Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian from Duke, and he once said that Advent is patience. It's how God made us a people of promise in a world of impatience. And on the one hand, I find this super resonant, especially in a place like Madison, where I think busyness is kind of the defining mark of our culture here sometimes. Advent teaches us to slow down, to discern what good things are ahead of us, but on the other hand, sometimes we have reasons to be impatient. When brokenness and pain are common in our lives, our families, our communities, our world, that may not be the time to be overly patient. I can't help but think about Martin Luther King Jr.'s A Letter from a Birmingham Jail, where he says, speaking to white, moderate clergy in the South who see themselves as allies but never really risk anything in the struggle. He says, You know, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. Now, the gospel for today is kind of an interesting choice because it doesn't follow the traditional Christmas story. We jump into chapter 11 right in the middle of the narrative about John the Baptist and Jesus, and I understand that for those of us that look forward to December Sunday's, where we get Christmas hymns and the traditional Christian Christmas narrative. This might be a little bit frustrating, but I think it's helpful, especially for our sermon series that we're focusing on, because it forces us to ask what it is that we are waiting for in the person of Jesus. To wait for the birth of Christ is not just to wait for Jesus of Nazareth, it's to wait for a liturgical moment when our spiritual and social imaginations have permission to broaden. When the words our family says about us must now do battle with the words that Christ says about us. When Rome no longer tells us who to wish for or who to hope in. When a lack of social stature no longer works against our call or its sacred vocation. When we can wholeheartedly believe in a world with more possibilities than the one that we inherited from our wisdom teachers or our family members or our spiritual leaders. Because it's not only about the birth of Jesus. It's about acquiring a new set of expectations. The expectations of a world where the blind see, the lepers are clean, the marginalized find equity, and our hurt is healed. Anna Case Winters says about this text that Jesus responds to John's questions. One, are you the one that we've been waiting for, or do we have to wait for another? That Jesus, offer, Jesus offers an answer that is not about his identity so much as it is about his action. It's what he does that matters, or what he initiates or catalyzes, not simply claims about who he is. Tell John what you hear and see. These are the very signs to expect from the one who is to come. Now, this doesn't mean that questions about Jesus' identity were or are unimportant— Biblical scholars will tell you that this text reflects a debate from within the Jewish community itself about whether they were waiting for a Messiah or not. And even those who felt like the Messiah figure was imminent, the form or archetype that this figure would take was not always agreed upon. So it makes sense that in the story, John is asking both if Jesus is the one and what form this one will take in the world. What evidence will there be that the one I've been preparing people for, says John, is actually here? Pretty urgent question for someone that offers this from the confines of a jail cell. And here, Jesus tells John's disciples to report back what they see, referring them to Isaiah 35 and 61, where it says, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. This passage always also reminds me of Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is in the synagogue after his temptation in the wilderness, and he's offered a text to read aloud to the congregation. In the story, the text says, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor Proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I think I'm reminded of, these, of this text for two reasons. One, because it's the other time in the Gospels where Jesus refers back to Isaiah 61, echoing some of these very clear and very direct statements about what it looks like for God's will to be done on earth. And two, because these two texts have been kind of essential biblical anchors for how I understand what the gospel actually is. If the gospel is good news, I think to myself, what are the specifics? What make it good, and how do we know we are living into it? Truth is, a lot of theologians are probably going to take issue with me picking just one or two passages out of Scripture to frame my definition of the gospel, and that's pretty fair. For generations, Christian thinkers have theorized their own understanding of what the gospel is, and they ground that in the text for sure, but they also use other sources like the history of the Christian tradition, philosophy, how we understand the historical life of Jesus— And even those who do kind of focus maybe on a particular text in the Bible, we don't often agree as Christians on which text should be the primary focus. For instance, when I was in high school and I was in youth group, I remember I went up to my youth leader one day and I said, okay, if I have to find kind of the most pithy, direct, clear definition of what the gospel is, where do I find that in the Bible? And I was given an assignment to memorize Romans 10, 9, and 10, which says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This is the gospel, he told me. And for a while, this text felt satisfactory is an answer to my question, It was a propositional statement about God and about me, and it gave me a clear sense of how to move from the bad news of death to the good news of salvation. But with time, that answer became less satisfying for me. I still felt committed to the gospel, or at least to the idea that there is good news that Christians should proclaim to the world, but I was no longer comfortable grounding that in a text that didn't come from the life or the stories of Jesus' ministry, And I was also no longer kind of defining that in terms of something that was so abstract or individually oriented. The more I experienced a world where real suffering happens, where real pain is manifest in our relationships, where real trauma is experienced in our personal lives, I was drawn to parts in Scripture that took those things most seriously and called us to do something about it. If the gospel was good news, I assume, then we should be able to see where it's been. It should leave a wake in the material world because people's lives have been attended to and cared for. It's in large part what drew me to James Cone, who, as many of you know if you've been in book studies or heard me preach, continues to show up in my own life in thinking about the scriptures. Cone, the patriarch of black liberation theology, said in one of his early books, there is no abstract revelation of God independent of human experiences to which theologians can appeal for evidence of what they say about the gospel. God meets us in the human situation, not as an idea or a concept. God encounters us in the human condition as the liberator of the poor and the weak, empowering them to fight for freedom because they were made for freedom. Revelation as the Word of God, witnessed in Scripture and defined by the creeds and the dogmas of Western Christianity, is too limiting to serve as an adequate way of doing theology today. What Cohn's saying is that for those of us trained or discipled or churched in Western European contexts, where Christianity has been either ...the dominant tradition or a partner with the most dominant empires and societies... ...we have been taught to turn the gospel into an abstract idea. An idea that fails to make an impact sometimes for those who need advocates in the actual world on the ground. For those who suffer, for those who are poor, for those who have been victims of racism or homophobia or patriarchy... ...or for those who have been caught in a cycle of hurtful relationships or oppressive self-hatred, the gospel shows up in those human situations and makes the concerns of those people priority. And I think it's an important point within the context of our sermon series, What Can't Wait? Because when faith is primarily about abstract ideas and disembodied definitions of spiritual concepts, urgency is not easy to come by. It's harder to identify what's at stake or what hangs in the balance until we start expecting results from the things we claim to believe in. Maybe we could say it this way. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is love unless love is going to mean that food stamps are available to those who can't feed their family during this or any other season. Or until the social inequities that make food stamps so necessary is eradicated. It's not enough to say that faithfulness to Christ is a virtue unless faithfulness means offering relationship to an isolated neighbor who could use an advocate to navigate the world and a friend just to live alongside it with. It's not enough to believe the gospel is good news unless good news means the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. The truth is, when talking about the gospel, the goodness of the news is directly connected to how seriously we take the struggle and the hurt that we are witnesses to. We don't overcome bad news simply by distracting ourselves with optimism. For as much as I, like many of you, might love watching dog videos on the internet where they are just being wonderful pet neighbors with their fellow animals, or they're just loving on their owners... And let me tell you that uh, for those that haven't found it quite yet, this is a rich and vibrant online video genre. And if you would like to be directed, any of the pastors can help you find these sources. <laughs> Most of our, like, group text chain is just sending videos of dogs and things. So, um, <laughs> but I, even though we like these kinds of things that make us feel good in a time where things might feel kind of bad, this can also, at least for me, function as a kind of numbing Attempt to make myself feel good in a world that can be so, so hard and difficult. In order to make sure that we are committed not simply to good vibes, but to good and transformational results on the ground. To make sure that we are not simply committed to good feelings, but to good news. We turn to the text. The text that doesn't let us talk about the good news of the gospel without facing the pain and the struggle that so many of our neighbors find themselves in. As Paul Hawken, an environmentalist, says, you cannot describe the possibilities for the future unless the present problem is accurately defined. Bridging the chasm between the two is always a challenge. During Advent or during any other time of year, We can't afford to wait for the good news that Jesus initiates or catalyzes in us to become a reality. Another way to say it is that if Jesus is born and we get on our knees before him in prayer, but the blind don't receive sight, the lame don't walk, the lepers aren't cleansed, the dead aren't raised, the poor remain systemically stifled, then what we have waited for was not actually Jesus. If Jesus is born and we bow down before him in worship, but past harm between family members remains unacknowledged, but we ask God for forgiveness from the pain we have caused, but we don't seek reconciliation with the victims themselves, then what we have waited for is not actually Jesus. It might look like the Jesus of our imaginations, one of those pristine, smiling babies that fits perfectly in a suburban nativity, But like my dog videos or the viral clips from Fallon, this Jesus can often just serve as a distraction. Because we aren't waiting for just any Jesus. This Advent, we wait for the Jesus that doesn't settle for an abstract gospel. We wait for a Jesus that leaves a wake in his path. Poet Adrian Rich wrote a stanza I'm going to read it. She said, My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have cast my lot with those who age after age perversely with no extraordinary power reconstitute the world. Jesus calls us to face the hurt. Jesus calls us to reconstitute the world toward joy. This is the gospel, and the good news can't wait. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. We pray for wisdom and for discernment. We recognize the value of Advent that causes us to pause, to prepare, to be patient. And we don't want to ignore that guidance, and yet we also pray for your wisdom on when we should be impatient. When we should not wait, when we have done enough preparation, and when preparation has actually just been an excuse not to take action. You are our guide, our wisdom source, and our heart. Lead us toward your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. We will now invite the ushers forward for the offertory.